Hello everybody, uh, this is the Keen Atomic, uh, I'm, my name's Nick, uh, joining me today as always is my co-host Danny. Hello. Um, this is a bonus episode, um, today we will be discussing the new David Fincher film uh, Mank, um, which was released on Netflix uh, well, a few days ago, um, had a small theatrical run from what I can gather. Um, whatever cinemas are open i think at the moment um so yeah so mank um directed by david fincher starring gary oldman as uh, herman mankovitz uh, amanda seyfried as marion davis uh, lily collins um and then character actors i think you kind of say lots of character actors kind of appearing um got a brief synopsis so 1930s Hollywood is re-evaluated through the eyes of a scathing social critic and alcoholic screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz as he races to finish the screenplay of Citizen Kane. So it, it sounds as though this is this is an attempt to kind of re-evaluate the history of how Citizen Kane was created. Is that right? Yes, you might be inclined to say so. I think it's it's it again it's slightly fiction you can't really you know it's a bit like the crown it, there's always that debate of like how much of it is true and how much yeah. of it is just embellished and if it, it, it's it's a piece of fix, fiction it's not a documentary so a lot of my friends who are film historians have been tweeting about it and how they were like I can't I can't bear to watch it because there's so much inaccuracy about it and I can't there's you know I get anxious seeing things that could never be, um, and so on and so forth. So I'm not going to do that. No, I'm just going to sort of enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, I th- oh. I think we I think we've got kind of like an interesting dynamic going on because I'm going to be looking at this film purely from like a film point of view, from evaluating it from where it stands in Fincher's filmography. Um, yeah. From what I can gather, you're going to look at it through the film history lens. Um, yeah, 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 we could do that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I can I can give um I can give a quick review of what I thought. Um, history aside. Yeah, bring it on. Um, I did like the technical bits and and like the intricate details. Um, it's it's great technically. I think it's a very beautiful film. Um, I watched it twice because I thought there was the reason I watched it twice was that there's so much detail that I missed I knew I missed the first time around because they they did put a lot of effort in in researching the period and like history but I thought that they could have done a bit more to some of the characters didn't didn't really feel alive at all some of like historical figures like Louis B. Mayer and Urban Thalberg just felt a bit you know flat um so in terms of the narrative i just i felt like there were some scenes that were a bit superfluous and didn't add much to the overall narrative but i think it is a good film 
Um, it will. I think it will win major awards because you know the Academy gets a hard on for films made about Hollywood, somewhat perpetuating the self-congratulatory tradition that was sort of started with Louis B. Mayer, who, like in the movie, I don't know if you. No, I don't think it, the movie mentions it in great detail, but I did a bit of research and um, Louis B. Mayer was the founder of the um, American Motion Picture um, and Arts and Sciences, like the Oscars. So it was as a response to the Screen Actor Guild Award and the Writer Guild of America, so sort of aiming to get everyone not to care mu that much about unions and, and what their rights as as professionals in the industry are. So um, I think it will win lots of awards. And Gary Oldman is great. Lily Collins somehow manages to act. <laughs> I think I think she was good. I really liked uh, Tepper's Middleton. I think she's brilliant. I really loved her. And Amanda, I mean, Charles Dance was impeccable as, as usual. And yeah, Amanda Seyfried was, was really good. Yeah. So yeah, I liked it. I gotta say, it would be quite weird if if uh, Netflix's first Oscar Best Picture film would go to, you know, a film which is about the history of Hollywood, and yeah, it's from a company that is been touted as the death of cinema. You know, it would be really quite yeah. weird if that that happens. Hmm. I do think they. I I do think they will. They will consider it as a great contender because it is a good film and a lot of work has been put into it and you could see that it because I've, I've read that it was in the pipeline for decades now yeah because it's been written but... by Pinter's late father who died in 2003 yeah um I, I, I don't really know how to kind of start mine I think I think the way I kind of approached Mank was that um in the kind of the bleed up to, to, to the film being released on the on the Friday, um I kind of rewatched some you know, some David Fincher films I hadn't seen in a while. Um just to kind of help with the top five list that we'll be talking about later on. Um and kind of with those films, one watching and one or second viewings, I kind of found myself kind of like pulled along and, and really gripped by like David Fincher's quite he has a very, very omniscient director style and a quite a detached POV. Um, it seems like it's, you know, the camera isn't, doesn't feel like a personal thing. It's a very, very omniscient being. Think about how it kind of moves in the, in the um, sequence of Panic Room where we go through the house. Mm. Um, but with Mank, I mean, the, the omniscience and detached nature of Fincher, it's kind of almost feels really odds with the human story that we have in the film. I mean, it's probably the most human story we've seen from him since the failure, you know, the curious case of Benjamin Button from 2008, which is deemed as his, you know, critical failure of his career. I really like that film. It's a film I've only seen once, and I remember kind of liking it. I'm a big but... fan of Kate Blanchett and Brad Pitt, so, you know... More yeah. of them, you know, I really liked it. 
I mean, I I found I found that there is with Mank, there's quite a levity to the film. There's a there's a quite a humor streak running through. This is definitely Finch's funniest film. Um, what, there is Mank, yes, yeah. Um, really? I yeah, no, I found I I the way the dialogue kind of sips back and forward. I, I some of it was really quite funny and. Um, to me, it felt quite old timey, and the fact that you had the um, they did that thing with the sound track with like the and it sounded like the dialogue sounded very old timey. Yeah, yeah. And you um, had the cigarette burns. I, I, it's a digital made film, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's digital, but I mean, and yeah, they had I mean, cigarette burns on it. Yeah. Um. I mean, I, I you thought know, that was cute. I th- I thought. Because on my, on my setup, you know, I, I, I don't have a big TV, but from what I can gather from other people who have larger setups or people that have seen in the cinema, they say that the digital quality of the film, there is actual film grain, but you need yeah, like the setup is. to see it, mm. um, which I, I didn't have. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought this film was, I thought the, the, the film was quite shaggy. Um, there's like a, it kind of zips backwards and forwards, obviously, yeah, backwards and forwards in in time period. It kind of feels um, kind of kind of like we're almost kind of wandering in and out of the narrative. Um, like it's a, it's more like a, it's not like a, a focused in and out of you know time periods. It's more of like we are wandering through something or we're kind of witnessing something we're being part of. Um, which I did, I did enjoy. I mean, I I found that there was a lo- there was a love and a care for the era that it was being showing, um, not unlike the the Coen Brothers and Hail Caesar. Um, that was kind of the film that I thought of the most when really? watching this. Yeah, you know, okay. I think it might be just like the way Hollywood is kind of shown. Like you see the back, you know, it all being made and yeah. the behind the scenes stuff. Um, what I felt was quite quite fin- quite interesting was that there was almost a deliberate attempt. There was it was a quite a de- it it felt like a deliberate attempt to show like there was a lot of conversation and, and topic around um, what seemed like the the fight of the political soul of California, um, and a lot of it was very very apt. Like the fake news stuff was, yeah. Um, it it almost it almost came across as preachy for me. Um, but this I don't is know what you... happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, history. You know, history. History so is. So I think that part it, so. of the story was quite true because we know that um, the studios were very like anti-communist. It's it's a bit of a precursor to the McCarthy era. Yeah. Of what what would what would you know become the McCarthy era in the forties and fifties. Like the witch hunt in Hollywood, because they were very anti-communist, and I think they did a good job in in showing. I don't know if Mank was if Herman Mankiewicz was actually a bit on the socialist side, um, but I I do think he might have been, and I think Orson Welles was also um, quite a lefty. Yeah, that wouldn't uh, surprise me to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I find that you know some, sometimes with films like this, like they're you know we've said that this film has been in the making for many many decades, and 
it's always interesting that this is the time when it's come out you know like especially with its the, the narrative that it's kind of showing and and it's it's yeah, deliberately it's, pointing out this time in time in history it's hard to it's hard to look at it and not notice like the parallels with our times in terms of like what you said like fake news and and fighting like republicans versus democrats and and fighting for what is true and you know and um the sort of elite versus the working working people the working man yeah we we to us we even see we see that in in hail caesar don't we um the conservative leanings of josh yeah. brolin's character and then you've got the writers with their i mean obviously this is coen brothers so they're pointed fun about the fact that all the writers are communists um yeah. <laughs> that are being taken advantage of by russia but mm. uh, in here it's in in mank it's like there is almost it's kind of showing that but from the more conservative point of view um of like how it's how it comes across as very very um oppressant oppressive mm. um yeah um i thought i i do agree with you the film is very very beautiful to look at um and you, you know the, the the cigarette burns i thought were, were quite a nice touch and there were times where the, the frames kind of staggered i don't know if you noticed that there was like a, no. a stuttering there was almost a time at some points in the film there was like a stuttering effect between the edit okay. um um, I don't know if that was only if that was me or if my internet decided to <laughs> pack in at that point, but um, yeah, no, I thought that was if that was intentional, that was really quite. In- that was really quite cool. Um, yeah, I, uh, Gary Oldman, um, I thought was was really really good. From what I can gather from seeing other people talk about the film online, he is older than the character should be yeah but come on it, i know i know it's gary Oldman. i mean this is trying to find like you know splitting hairs here because it, well the truth is he was the real mankowitz was 43 at the time and he was the same age as as marion davis played by amanda so afraid yeah. and i mean yeah amanda is like what 34 and Gary Oldman's sixty-two, so it kind of you know. But at the same time, you have you have to think about he Mankiewicz was a drunkard, and he aged very badly. And um, Marion Davies had been an actress, so she knew how to look after herself. So you kind of, I think that the the aesthetics of the film do work. I don't find any fault with it. I do think that um, everyone who everyone did a really good job in, in 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 their performance tom burke did really well as orson i think the voice was spot on i was gonna say that i thought his he, he i think his voice he managed to really imitate yeah. orson wells's voice yeah. and i thought his I was... makeup at times was quite telling like the, the yeah the um what do you call it profile like every now and then mm. like give a show and he'd be like that that is that orson wells <laughs> you know that is orson wells I just, uh, yeah, I, I like, I mean, there's no, it's no secret that I, I'm a big fan of Orson Welles. And I do think that this film could have done a better job in, I mean, it's it's not about him, that's for sure. Um, but I do think that it's kind of focusing more on, like, yeah, Orson Welles didn't really write 
Citizen Kane. When in fact, he actually did. So, yeah, I think I'm, I'm going to start delving. If, if that's all your notes for now. I mean, I've, uh, yeah, I mean, I've just got like a thing about the music and, and kind of like trying to summarize. Yeah, the music was very so. good and surprisingly uh, no synth inside. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for, for yeah, the, but... I, I'm a sucker for scores by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Um, I really am. Like anything by Trent, I'm just like, I'm there straight away. And I thought this was them. I thought their work has been extreme of a high, really, really high standard since you know they they released the Social Network in 2010, which I've said on many occasions I think is the best score of the last 10 years. Um, I expected. I mean, actually, to us, I don't even know what I expected with this score. Like, we, what we got was something that was quite different, and it was very, very. Um, uh, what's the word? Um, deliberate and uh it was of the era wasn't it like yeah, it, it was yeah, yeah very much so and it's something that they've done before um you know they hinted at hinted at kind of working within eras with their work for the uh watchman uh hbo original series um you know there they go from um like thumping synth work and there's a track called uh none with a motherfucking gun on the watchman soundtrack which is like classic nine inch nails instrumental work um and then they go into like a jazz piece um like a couple of tracks later or you know in the in the series it's like a couple of scenes later it's like this jazz piece that's originally written by trent and atkus and they show themselves very very adept at doing that and i think with mank they they kind of go that one step further of being able to show look we're not just the synth guys we can do other things um and i i think i do need to sit and listen to the score in isolation i think to kind of truly appreciate it um but from what i can got from the film i, I you know i thought it was a very very good very very good score yeah yeah it's very good so uh what i found um i mean we're, we're going back to the controversy of what fincher said about orson wells quite recently right yeah. <laughs> so um, I do respect Fincher's opinion on Wells, but I feel like he forgets that Wells himself said many times over that when he made Citizen Kane, he really didn't know what he was doing. He really didn't. And he was, he he called Greg Toland as the genius without whom the world, the film would not have been made possible and it definitely would have not come out the way it did. Um, and I think if you watch, I, I had to rewatch Citizen Kane just because reasons, um, the other night. And if you look at the, um, end credits uh, on the same credit title card at the end, so the, the, the final, very final title card, Orson shares it with Greg Toland. All right. Some say it's false modesty, but I don't think it is. So you have Orson Welles, writer, producer, director. No, because the, the, the writing credit was um, Mankiewicz and Orson. And then right after, you have um, production production direction. And right behind, and underneath it, you've got Greg Tolland, director of photography. So I do think he paid his dues. He, he was never... 
um, the, um, what was it, in love with his own um, legend, the way Fincher kind of suggested he might have been. I do think that the the idea of the uh, screen credit for writing and how they kind of slightly fought over it was because RKO gave Orson money to write, direct, produce a film and all the credits to be given to him. So he thought that he might be asked to give some of the money back because he had someone else work with him. That's why you you see him going like, ah, oh, I want full credit. Um, and I, th I think that's what was in the in the first in like first draft of the contract with Mankiewicz was that he was not to receive screen credit. Um, also, um, I don't know if you st when you when you went to uh, when you did your bachelor's in film studies, were you asked to read *Raising Cain*? No, I haven't read that. I seem to remember that they made us read *Raising Cain*. And it was a very dry piece of work, and by Pauline Kale. Um, but you know of it. I know. Yes, I do. I knew of it. Um. Um. And I I remember reading it, and I'm thinking, why is this woman so angry? Because <laughs> she was very, very like she 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 had an agenda. She definitely had something that she just hated Orson Welles. I don't know why. It wasn't just Orson Welles that she disliked. It was quite a lot of things. Yeah, but it, I mean, in this particular piece, she just she just went for him, big time, and it was just a completely vitriolic piece of writing that just I just it was completely unjustified. And uh, apparently, David Fincher's father, who wrote the script to Mank, was influenced by Raising Cain, and. I think you kind of see it in in the film that you, you know Orson is not it's he's only like for a handful of scenes if that yeah and it's all about Mank and how Mank just thought it up the whole film and I don't know I mean it, I don't think it's true that he developed the hatred for for um, Hearst as as a consequence of Hearst and and W B Mayer, L B Mayer, um, sort of stealing the election from the socialist um, Upton Sinclair. I don't think that that's a bit far fetched from from what I I know, but I wouldn't be surprised if if they had like political disagreements and then Mank decided that I'm going to get you for it and I'm going to write a film about you and I'm not going to paint you in a nice picture. Yeah. Um, and I do know that. So yeah, I think Hearst was, you know, hypocrite number one, and Abby Mayer was hypocrite number two. Um, and yeah, I just, I just kind of, I hope that they might have sort of shown them slightly more like rounded characters. It just felt a bit flat for me. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I might be wrong, but who? I don't think. Thalberg and, and Mayer would would just supervise scenes written uh, scenes of film, like shooting films um, on a normal basis. So it's it seemed a bit far fetched to, to for them to be there on the set watching films being made. 
Um, and I want to say more about Marion Davies because I just felt that this could this might have been this could have been a great opportunity to show more about Marion Davies and how great she was. Because she was a great actress and she was a really good businesswoman and she had a great great career. And I know Orson Welles was very upset. He he had regret um, that the character of Susan Alexander in Citizen Kane was associated with Marion Davies, which was not really the case because he didn't write her with her in mind. But people did associate her uh, because of all the puzzles and all, you know um, details. And I just I I I think that I mean Amanda Seyfried just really did a good job but I just think that she could have been a bit more a bit stronger I mean she was cheeky and funny I guess what did you think of the character I mean I I you can only work with what you've got really and I, I've been I do I like Amanda Seyfried as an actress I always have um ever since she played um uh, Lily Kane on the tv series Veronica Mars um i i've been a fan of hers I, th I think she's excellent in jennifer's body as well and seeing her in, in this i think she's kind of like matured a bit i mean it came out that when she, when fincher phoned her up and asked her to be in the film like she cried because she was like so happy that somebody like david fincher would want her to be in his film and i think you know you can only i think she does bring i thought she does bring kind of a, a, a character to life very very well and i you know i do think you can only work with what you've got and you can only really yeah. elevate what you've got so far um i think i think she's very very good and i i think apart from the scene where her and, and gary oldman's might kind of walk through the the zoo of the estate you know there isn't really a, a scene for her to kind of get her teeth stuck into that yeah. i know that she's really capable what... of that's why I'm, that that's that's kind of my objection because I did a bit of research on on Marion Davis right, and she was an exceptional person. She was really really cool. She had a really long career and she sometimes wrote her own stuff as well for the movies, and she was a great comedian. I saw a film the other day, um, and it just yeah it just blew my wig off <laughs> to quote her, <laughs> and. Um, it was just one of those things that I, I wanted more. I wanted to see more of that. I wanted to see that she was not just, you know, a damsel in distress tied to a, a burning pyre, you know. And um, I just felt slightly disappointed. I mean, with the, with the writing of the film, not not with her, not with Amanda Seyfried. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I thought that. I thought that she. I mean, the film isn't called Davies, is it? It's called Mank, so it's about Mank. It's about his kind of journey through it's about his writing of Citizen Kane. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it would kind of make sense that we only get a little bit of Marion Davies than what we, the kind of what maybe we deserve. I mean, this 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 could easily be in a, a six part you know netflix series you know they should like, have a film about marion davis it should it should be like the fourth or fifth season of a feud 
shouldn't it? Uh, Wells yeah. and uh, Wells and and Mankiewicz, you know, and then you'd be able to stretch all these characters out and kind of give a bit more meat yeah, to it. Absolutely, because for instance, um, she would yeah, she, uh, she was she really loved um, Hearst because he kept interfering with her career, and it was because of him that she her career didn't. Well, she had to. Well, she decided to retire in nineteen thirty-seven, uh, when she could have sort of kept going. So he kind of influenced. He he was a bad influence in in her career. But she didn't. She didn't leave him. She just stuck by him until yeah. he died in nineteen fifty-one. So it was true love. It was just incredibly romantic in a twisted kind of way. Yeah. Because he was he was a control freak. He was like he would not let her have um, kissing scenes with with her co stars on movies. He kept pushing. Another interesting thing he kept uh, that appears in the movie. He kept pushing for her to have more like period drama roles. And uh, one of the, I think, him and May have fell out because she would have she wanted the role for Marie Antoinette, which eventually went to. Norma Shearer, of course, and because Norma Shearer was the queen of, of the MGM lot, no questions asked. Um, but Marion was kind of like sidelined, and it could have been a good a good role. Another thing that kind of I took offense with, because, you know, you see them talking about that role. Oh, because, yeah, Marion would have made a really great Marie Antoinette. And um, I don't think... I don't think Hurst would have invited Mayer after after he refused <laughs> Marion Davis that role. I don't think that would have happened. Okay. And how silly it is to have like a, cost, a costume party where everyone's sitting down. Yeah. Did would that did that happen or does that I don't like... think so. I mean, mm. I I I think it's a good idea to present that because apparently the the parties were very dull. Um, at um the at San Simeon the residence, um apparently that yeah they were kind of like slightly dull affairs, where yeah. and Mank got kicked out for drinking too much. Yeah, I mean that scene that scene was weird. I I I I, I that scene finished and I was like, well, I kind of understand yeah. the point of that scene, but it just felt yeah. I don't know, it felt weird. It did. I mean, it was kind of like yeah. It did, it did feel really, really weird, but it, it kind of, you know, laboured the point that, you know, Mank was a socialist and he wanted to sort of tell everybody how he, how hypocritical he, he thought um, Hearst was. And after watching Mank, I rewatched Citizen Kane. And with the idea of the socialist agenda in mind, I found this really interesting quote do you remember um when um after the after um kane loses the election yeah in in the film in citizen yeah. kane and yeah there's a there's a dialogue scene with him and jedediah played by joseph cotton and jedediah says he used to write a lot about the working man He's turning into something called organized labor. You're not gonna like that one bit. When you find when you find out your working man expects something as his right, not as your gift. 
And um, I think that line kind of stood out for me after after watching the rant that Mank does at the at the party. Yeah, that that's yeah, that is quite interesting. I would be yeah. actually I would be interested to rewatch Citizen Kane now after watching Mank and having that point of view in mind. Yeah, because there's I think there's things that stand out, and I do like I said before I do think that they did a lot of good research on on this on Mank and and it kind of comes in together. It tied, it, it sometimes sometimes it's kind of slow slow paced, and you're trying to understand exactly what's been happening. But there is there is a lot of a lot to unpack. Um, in terms of the politics, they did that scene where you see the hobos sort of jumping from the train and sort of going to California because it was the Golden State apparently during the, during the Depression, and everyone like mid mid America would just flock to to California for jobs. And we will get to talk a bit more about that when we talk about the grapes of wrath. Um, when we have the um Henry Fonda special. Um, but yeah, it was just the idea. It was how you know, poor people coming in taking our jobs. You know, immigrants, whatever. It just it's the same thing, isn't it? How media portrays stuff. Yeah. It will inf- it will influence the public opinion. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um. I'm trying to think where how else we can kind of follow on from this. Um, have, have, do you have any like? Do you have like a concluding sentence you kind of want to sign off with on Mank before I do mine? I think that I would like to see more films that tackle the same period um, in Hollywood. Because I think at this point in time, I think what might happen soon is that Hollywood is on the way out and we're looking at it as a sort of dinosaur. So we're making films about dinosaurs now. They become extinct. And I mean, this, this is in reference to the fact that news broke. I'm assuming news broke last week about Warner Brothers um releasing the entirety of their 2021 catalogue on hbo max and uh big screens simultaneously um they say it's going to be a one-time thing but you don't know it's not going going to to be it's not i don't think it's going to be i think i honestly think hollywood has been waiting or the big studios i think have been waiting for this something like the pandemic to happen for them to do this because they've been pushing for these streaming services thing ever since Netflix kind of kicked off for the last what 10 12 years yeah. I think they've been really been I think they've been wanting to do this for a long time and I think we we see we've seen it with the success of Disney Plus um worldwide about you know they the Disney Plus you know they released uh, Mulan on Disney Plus and it was kind of seen as like this big thing about oh no Mulan's going on Disney Plus instead of the cinemas, and it was kind of ended up becoming like a collective shrug, almost like an acceptance that this is the going to be the thing from now on. Yeah. Um, and we're getting Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four being released on on Christmas Day and on cinemas kind of at the same time. Um. So yeah, I think I think you are right that this this film is kind of like 
maybe this is where things are going to end up. We're going to see a lot more films kind of looking back on like the history of things rather than uh, the history of Hollywood rather than kind of looking more introspectively if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um yeah. I mean for me like I mean do do I think that this is the best work of a director, you know, who we haven't seen anything of in 5 years? You know, his last film before this was Gone Girl. Um yeah, he did a he did House of Cards. Um well no, what? House of Cards was 2012, wasn't it? So Mind no, Hunter. Mindhunter, that was it, which I think is fantastic. Um Yes, it is. I don't think Mank is his best work. No. Um I I think I think this is kind of Fincher's attempt to kind of branch away from you know, the serial killers and the pulp novels and the mind games that we kind of we've seen from him from the majority of his work and more towards something akin to like I said, that his only real creative and critical failure, the curious case of Benjamin Button. Yeah. Um you know, I, I do think it's I do think it's him trying to branch away. I think I think Mank will be a movie that I will no doubt revisit, you know, in a year's time or something. I think I'm gonna just leave it and just kind of sit on it for a bit. And I probably will discover something then that will kind of either grab me or connect with me more much more on a kind of a profound level. But kind of at this point in time I enjoyed the film. I did find it to be a very, very enjoyable journey through a period of film history that I really only know fragments of. I mean I feel like you know, the the last like half an hour of you talking to me about the history of Hollywood in that time period and you know, it's more than I've learned, you know, ever um especially when talking about this film um so yeah i mean i i, I appreciate being shown these fragments through the lens of, of a master director of david fincher um you know it's not often you know we see a film by david fincher that's you know it's it's we spoke about this when we spoke about nolan didn't we where we were like it's a big name director you know we're gonna w- watch that film by yeah. that director and i think having a film history lesson by fincher if even it's not a documentary it's like an, an opinion of what happened then... it, yeah it's not i mean as the thing i do because i love film history and i love history in general when i see a film like this i will just go back and just research the heck out of that subject um because it's not a documentary and there's a lot of inconsistencies and there's a lot of of stuff that you can learn from from a film like this but most of it if you want to it's not a, it's not a history lesson per se it's a history it's a story it's an imitation of a history lesson so to speak yeah that makes sense it it's not it's 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 one point of view because you know history is rewritten all the time, isn't it? Yeah, history is only written from the point of view of the winner. So yeah, so uh, to have a story from a point of view of someone who was a washout, a wash up, um, it was it was it's interesting. It's it's definitely um a good a good point of view, I think, and we need more of that. We we think we think I think we need. Stories from the Marion Davis point of view as well. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so any any more on Mank? Are we done? No, I think I think we're done with Mank. Okay. Unless you want me to talk more about my love for Orson Welles. <laughs> I mean, I think I don't know if we even know if we've got an Orson Welles film coming up uh, soon. I don't I don't know. I'm gonna have to look at our schedule. Um, <laughs> uh, I think you know I've only seen Citizen Kane, Lady Shanghai, and F for Fake, so. Um, there's still a lot more for me to be learnt, so history lessons I think are coming, will be coming soon. I think. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, like we did with our um, review of Tenet, we where we did a top five uh, Christopher Nolan moments. We are going to torture ourselves by trying to get top five Fincher moments. Um. So yeah, Danny, um, did you struggle with this? I did, yeah. um, mostly because I was, it was very tempting for me to just pick five moments from Fight Club or five moments from Seven and leave it at that, you know, because those two are like my absolute favorite films of David Fincher's. And I, I, it's hard for me to pick. I really liked Gone Girl as well. And I didn't pick any move any moments from then because you just I could I just couldn't there was no room. I d- I don't have any moment from from seven. Uh, you don't have <laughs> any moments from seven. No, I don't. I've been bold. I I've, I've decided to be bold. Go on then. Um. So, I'll let you go first. Um, okay. With your number five. My number five. Um. Like I said just before, I did really enjoy. The Curious Case of Benjamin Button and I picked as my number five the moment when they look they're in the um, ballet uh, studio and they look in the mirror and they and he says I want us to I want to remember us as we are now you certainly are beautiful to watch dancing's all about the line the line of your body Sooner or later, you lose that line, and you never get it back. I figure you were born in 1918, 49 years ago. I'm 43. We are almost the same age. Meeting in the middle. I thought I caught up with the child. Wait. I want to remember us just as we are now. Um, I think there's a lot of nostalgia in, in that film. And the idea of someone aging, de-aging, or sort of aging backwards, is just, I thought that was quite an interesting, clever idea. Awesome. Um, I don't have any moment from curious case either um my my number five is um i'm just gonna the rooftop sequence uh the rooftop scene from the game this is what you hired us for they're waiting on the other side of that door with champagne nicholas he's god damn it conrad conrad's there it's your birthday party you stop flying let me show you Don't you kill me. He's got a gun! Get back from the door! 
So it this was. this could quite have easily have been the what's in the box sequence from seven. But yeah. I rewatched the game and like I said, I've decided to be bold. Um I've made I it I really known... like the game. Yeah, I've made it known uh, before um that one of my favourite subgenres is Michael Douglas getting his head fucked with. Um <laughs> there needs to be more films with Michael Douglas, you know, being screwed over, like in Basic Instinct or, or Fatal Attraction. Um I think with the game the whole film just keeps the viewer kind of questioning what we see. Yeah. Um, and it culminates in this rooftop sequence where it was revealed that the gun that Michael Douglas is, Nicholas is holding is actually real. And there's this mm. panic and they're just like, the, the stakes are kind of raised into this stratospheric levels. And then the door opens and it's a sucker punch. Yeah. And then because of Seven, like, I wouldn't have been surprised because this was the film that he followed Seven with. And it wouldn't have been surprised if the film ended there with michael douglas falling yeah but it's the game at the end of the day and it's a ride um so that's my that's my number five um what's your number four so i've rewatched. i i've put myself through two hours and 37 minutes watching rewatching zodiac and i felt like it was it was too great a film to to not make the top five and I think one of I, I, at first I thought that the scene where where you, you had the lady with the baby in the car and she gets kind of you know almost killed, I thought that was quite tense. But I I think going forward, like watching it till the end, it it was the scene where he goes to the the house of that silent film buff guy who has the basement and the whole scene in that house just you know. Is brilliant. You live alone? Uh, Most Dangerous Game ran in May 69. So that would be about nine weeks before the first Zodiac letter, correct? Uh, yeah. Do you think you saw the film in our theater and was inspired? Are you sure there's nobody else in the house? Would you like to go upstairs and check? No. Thank you. Thanks for everything. You're welcome. It's so needle it's so needlessly tense, isn't it? It's It's so tense. I mean, you know, oh. It's like, oh, I wrote that. That's my handwriting. And then he kind of goes, oh, my God, he's the killer. <laughs> There's a guy upstairs, like, who's upstairs? And I think yeah. Jake, Jake Gyllenhaal's performance in, that, in the whole yeah, film, I, I think, is excellent. Yeah, I know, it's brilliant. And then you have, uh, like, you have, like, close-ups, and then you have, like, camera pan, and it's like, goes through the basement. I mean, we spoke we spoke a couple of weeks ago about uh, Gyllenhaal's performance in Nightcrawler and kind of how he's, he's like really really scary and quite horrible yeah. to look at. But in this in that sequence, like he's a scared boy, and it's so he's good. He's a very fair. Yeah, you can't even open the door. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Um, so my number four is um, I've gone with. The th- I've gone with technically two things from the girl with the dragon tattoo but it's kind of one thing. So it's the use of the song Immigrant Song, 
um, the cover from uh, Trent Reznor and Karen O of the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, Immigrant Zombie, and obviously the the Led Zeppelin uh, yeah. track. So this is going to be both the use of the song in the first trailer that was used for the film and for the opening credit sequence of the film. Mm -hmm. So in the trailer, the thumping percussion is is timed perfectly with the edit. Um, The whole point of a trailer is to sell you on a film and to not give away too much. You know, a a common complaint in trailers nowadays is they give away too much in dialogue. There is not a single word of dialogue in that trailer. It's just shots. Um, and it it, it kind of culminates in the reveal that this is the feel-bad movie of Christmas. Um, it's one of the best trailers ever made, in my opinion. Um, and then the use of the song on the opening credit sequence with this black-on-black, oily texture, with the figures and the images, you know, got these the wasps and the wires... Mm. Um, and it kind of it hints at the darkness that we're going to see um, going forth in the in, in the film. I think I don't think it's as iconic as the closer intro in Seven, but I think it's it's the one that I can watch on. I can watch more like the closer one in Seven. I can only watch that once. Like and it, put, it is it's very, so horrible. Very, yeah. But with the immigrant okay. song, I'm just like I want to watch that and just dissect it and just <laughs> and just take it in because it's so so good. Um, so your number three. My number three is um that moment where the camera co- there's a close up of a hat wearing Marla when she's smoking and you have like the where she's wearing the black sunglasses and she's just blowing smoke at the camera in a very Twisted, Marla-ish kind of way. Marla, the big tourist. Her lie reflected my lie. And suddenly, I felt nothing. I couldn't cry. So once again, I couldn't sleep. That's uh, from Fight Club, yeah? Yes, that's yeah. from Marla Singer from Fight Club. <laughs> My... It's just so iconic. You see her and it just like camera zooms in with her and she's like, oh, the tourist. My number three is actually is, another, is a moment from Fight Club um, and hinges on Marla. So this is the moment where in the hotel where uh, Edward Norton's narrator has kind of travelled across the country to try and figure out what's, what is going on and then oh, yeah. he phones Marla and 
she says his name, she says Tyler. done it done what have we ever had sex what kind of stupid question is that is it stupid because the answer is yes or because the answer is no this is a trick no marla i need to know you, mean you want to know if i think we're just having sex or making love we did make love is that what you're calling it just answer the question marla please did we do it or not you fuck me then snub me you love me you hate me you show me a sensitive side then you turn into a total asshole is that a pretty accurate description of our relationship tyler we have just lost cabin pressure. What did you just say? What's wrong with you? What did you just call me? Say my name. Tyler Durden. Tyler Durden, you fucking freak. What's going on? I'm coming over. No, wait, did Marla, I'm not there. And yeah. the cabin pressure drops and the reveal is there. It, it reveals that And you have Brad Pitt sitting next to him, like yeah, opposite. Opposite him. Yeah. And Brad Pitt's in that amazing... He's got this, like, fur Woolly coat, thingy. shaved head... Oh. An orange mesh shirt, and there's like you. You briefly see his trousers, and they're like chino trousers, and you got these amazing shoes on, and it's like only a look that Brad Pitt can pull off. Yep. Uh, um, and then Edward Norton's there in like a shirt and boxers, because obviously, like you know, the police threatened to cut his balls off. And <laughs> you know, he, he questions and panics, and I think that whole that whole reveal of. He is Tyler Durden. is so economically done. Um, yeah. And it's such a major reveal in such a short space of time. And there will be other films that will spend like 10 minutes on that entire reveal. Whereas this is like, it's done so perfectly in, in the dialogue. And the conversation and the and the back and forth between Brad Pitt and Edward Norton is, is fantastic. And it's all, it all hinges on, all hinges on Marla. Yep. Um, so what's your number two? Well, um, with the risk of being very politically incorrect, I had to pick it because it was one of those scenes that I just got chills down my spine. Um, It's the first moment we actually see Kevin Spacey in Seven and he yells detective when he's got blood on his shirt and his fingers are bandaged because he's cut down all the fingerprints. And that image is just so creepy. It's just it makes it even creepier now that now that we know he he was indeed a monster. Yeah. So it's just very, very creepy. You knew I'd say yes. Hey, we're here. Wonderful. Your wife called before. Get yourself an answer machine. Detective. After this, I'm Detective. gone. No big surprise. Detective! You're looking for me. What's your fucking move? On the fucking floor. Live away from him! On the fucking floor! I know you. Now! Get out! Get down! On your stomach, you piece of shit! Now! All the way! All the way, fucker! Down! Faster! Faster! Faster, fuck! Now! Those on the ground! Jesus Christ. What the fuck is this? I'd like to speak to my lawyer, please. 
God damn it! Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I can't... I struggle watching Seven now. I really do. Um, which is a shame because it's a really fucking good film, but it's that... Un- it's knowing what else, you know? It's knowing what else. And it just adds an extra layer to it. Oh, come on. <laughs> um... <laughs> If Mine... we were to stop eating, we never No, I know we can go into a whole thing about separating. We, we the won't art be able to artist. watch anything anymore because everything's been tainted by someone who's done something bad. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Um, yeah, you wouldn't be able to watch bloody the The Shining because of how Kubrick treated Shelley Duvall. Exactly. Um, I know, I know. Um, so my number two is is a creepy moment as well, actually, but it's from Zodiac. Um, I've gone for the dual use of Donovan's hurdy-gurdy man. At the beginning and the end. And the beginning and the end. So, like, yeah, so the first is at the start with the shooting of Darlene Ferrin and Michael Majot. Um, mm-hmm. in, that, in that sequence, the song is both diegetic, diegetic and non-diegetic. Um, you know, we hear the chords and Donovan singing as the car kind of approaches and then drives away, and then it's on the radio, and then the guitar solo hits its climax as the the killer comes out and he he shoots the bullets into the car, um, and that because of that the song ends up becoming as unsettling as "Stuck in the Middle with You" does from in Reservoir Dogs. Mm. Um, I can't listen to Hurdy Gurdy Man without thinking of serial killers now. Um, yeah, and I can't know. listen to Stuck in the Middle with You without thinking of exactly like a Madsen doing that thing. Um, and then the ending of the film, you have uh, Michael Majot, uh, now played by Jimmy Simpson, come back to kind of identify yeah. who he believes yeah. is the Zodiac killer. Uh, and, you know, he looks over the portraits and he sees the face of Arthur Lee Allen, and he says that he is sure that that is the man who shot him. And as he says that, the chords start, and you hear Donovan singing. And at the moment, we are so unset. We are unsettled again, and there's without resolution, and it's just perfect. And there's a chef's kiss emoji, and it's mm. just brilliant. It's just so good. It's been 22 years. I don't know how I can help you. Well, this is just a formality. I'm going to show you a group of photographs. Now, the person that shot you may or may not be among these photographs. You don't have to pick anybody out just because I'm showing you these pictures, you understand? Uh, yes, sir, I do. <clears throat> time you don't recognize anyone that's okay it's him how sure are you i'm pretty sure He had a round face like this guy. Wait, am I to understand that you're now identifying the second photograph? No, I'm just just said he had a round face like that. It's this man. All right. Now, on a scale of one to ten, ten being positive, how sure are you? <clears throat> At least an eight. Last time I saw this face was July 4th, 1969. I'm very sure that's the man who shot me. 
So, Danny, number one. So, my number one is the um, basement scene, the first basement scene in Fight Club when the camera goes, Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. Every week, Tyler gave the rules that he and I decided. Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. Second rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. Third rule of Fight Club, someone yells stop, goes limp, taps out, the fight is over. Fourth rule, only two guys to a fight. Fifth rule, one fight at a time, fellas. Sixth rule, no shirts, no shoes. Seventh rule, Fights will go on as long as they have to. And the eighth and final rule. If this is your first night at Fight Club, you have to fight. It's just such a, like, it's like almost 360 degree. And then you see Brad Pitt with his arms crossed going like, gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. Just iconic. I love it. And I love Brad Pitt. That's a very, very iconic scene. Yeah. It's been a while since I've seen Fight Club. Um, it's still one of my favourite films of all time. It's like that thing they say, they say like, you know, if you ever go round a, a guy's house and you see he's got posters as a Scarface in Fight Club, you need to get the fuck out of there. Um, but really? I, Who's there? Yeah. It's, 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 on, it's, you know, it's a thing on Twitter. Um you know, film Twitter. If you see a film Twitter bro who's got favorite films of Fight Club and Scarface, you know, just stay away from them. But what? I think, I because th- I think it's like the the portrayal of masculinity. There's quite, oh, there's quite oh. like a, a a Snyder bro or Nolan bro or Fincher yeah. bro kind of approach to it. It's like they idolize Tyler Durden, um, but it's really hard not to. <laughs> I I like it because of the psychological angle and because. I think yeah, it's just more than than just you know masculinity. I think it laughs at it as well, kind of. Oh yeah, it does. It totally does. Yeah, I it's think not I, just yeah. The long, the 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 more kind of away from nineteen ninety nine we get, the more kind of apt and the more kind of you start thinking, maybe Tyler Durden had a point. Yeah. Um. So, which is quite a dangerous way of thinking but the things you own and end up owning, owning you yeah that's why I'm, I'm kind of you know hope, hoping that this pandemic might have changed our consumers behavior slightly ever so yeah. slightly ever so slightly um so my number one is uh, a sequence from the social network um of course i was of... kind of expecting you I'm like what why haven't you talked about social network yet um, I I I love this film. I've said it on a number of occasions. I I've said this is the best film of the 2010s. I, I it's it's a fucking masterpiece in my opinion. Um, so this is the sequence uh, in the hall of the Mountain King.
So this is the use of the cover of Grieg's classical masterpiece in the Wall of the Mountain King by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross over um, the Winklevi, um, to use the plural, um, in the regatta sequence in, in rowing in, mm. in, in, in the UK. Um, yeah. so this, this sequence kind of, it, it does, it doesn't really serve, it serves little purpose in the actual creation of Facebook, but it is perfect in showcasing the isolation of, of the Winklevi and the sheer force of will that is kind of beating them to the finish line. Yeah. Um, it's made up entirely of composite images. There is a fantastic breakdown online about how Fincher put the sequence together, um, digitally, um, and it's a, it's a dreamlike quality to the sequence. Um, and the, 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 it kind of builds and it crescendos and the edit and the shots kind of build faster. And then we fight, we, there's the loss and we, we see, you know, Ar, um, Army Hammer, Army Hammer's Winklevi, because he plays, of the, he, he digitally plays he plays both of them, but one of them is actually Josh Pence. Um, and there's, see them lose and there, there's nothing but exhaustion and loss at the end um i think it says something that three out of the five picks that i've chosen contain music cues um which really comes to comes to as no surprise considering fincher's background um in in music videos um i yeah. think he's i think he's utterly he's what he's the best at doing that i think in using music and film together i think he's truly one of the best yeah absolutely i was rewatching. Fight Club the other day and I had missed it at, at the time when I first watched it, when I watched it many years ago um, that there's a um, as soon as they go into that um, club where they have the meetings in the back, in the basement there's a Tom Waits song playing and I didn't pick it up the first time Oh wow! and I love Tom Waits, I'm a big Tom Waits fan so well, yeah I was listening to I was one of watching Girl of the Dragon Tattoo, and because uh, it's set in Sweden, um, the when she, when um, I was going to say Numi Rapace, but that's the Swedish version. When Rooney Mara's Elizabeth uh, goes and visits her hacker friend, the guy with the nine inch nails T-shirt, he opens up the door, and then there's a song by a band, a Swedish band called Koma, K H O M A, and they're like this death metal band but have a, a singer that sounds like tom york and it's playing in the background mm. and i'm like that's such a, an amazing song choice because it's so left field but it fits so perfectly with with the sequence um and i never caught that before Ooh. so um i think we're, we're all done with fincher um i think we are uh, like I said, the, the the nature of this podcast means that unless Fincher releases another film, we won't be talking about him because <laughs> both yeah. me and Danny have seen everything by Fincher. Yep. Um. So yeah, with all that in mind, um, Danny, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Kinojoan, and my website is kinojoan.co.uk. And you can find me on Twitter at Nikeshchanda, and my website is superatomovision.com. Um, the Jaws piece is now online. Um, Excellent! I should give it a read. It's a bit of a long read because um, it's kind of edited from a, a, a piece of work I did for uni, but it's kind of edited a bit more journalistic style. So I uh, hope you guys enjoy that. 
Um, you can find us on Twitter at Keenotomic and our email is Keenotomic at gmail.com. Let us know what your favourite Fincher moments are um, and what you thought of Mank. Seems to be quite a polarising thing on Twitter. Um, yes. By the looks of it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, quite a few people I follow kind of saying that they're going to stop talking about it because the Fincher bros are coming out. <laughs> Um, these are the people that have Fight Club as their favourite movie and don't really understand the irony of it (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, yeah so where are we where are we at in our podcast lineup so this will be released um, this will be released on the Monday I think on the Thursday we've got our Henry George Clouseau double uh, director December I'm not going to attempt the name of the film, one of the films, because I butcher it. Um, so, say that again. Le Diabolique. There we go. With Wages of Fear. So keep an eye, keep an ear for that. Um, yeah. So hope everybody is okay. With all that in mind, it's a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me. And a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me. Yeah.